The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our New Testament reading today is from 1 Peter 1, 3-12. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, David. Welcome again. And uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you, uh, my name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church in town. And... Um, no, I wonder, I was thinking this morning about you all and myself, because this title of this passage and this sermon is A Living Hope, and I thought, I wonder what we're really hoping for this morning. I, I remember actually sitting, um, before I was the, became the pastor of this church, just like you are now, I was a pastor, actually, but at a different location, a campus minister actually across the street at Vanderbilt. And this is only some handful of Easter's ago, Easter Sundays ago, on an Easter Sunday, literally sitting there. And as the service went on, I found myself um, with disappointment. Not with what was going on in the service, but with myself. I I found myself sitting there during the Easter service thinking, man, what what a disappointing Christian I am. What, what a disappointment I am. We're, we're talking about celebration, Jesus' resurrection. What, how, what, what hope do I have in me? All the longings that I had for myself just came crashing down. And literally, the further the service went on, the more I kept trying to think, what do I, what do I start putting hope in? I started thinking, how do I need to start reading my Bible more this year? How do I need to start? And I'm a past, like, professional Christian, like in the pew, sitting there, uh, listening, 
to the service and I'm, that's all I can think about is how do I make myself better? And it, it, that's, it isn't a hope. I mean, I don't, some of you I may not have met yet and I'd love to meet you maybe after the service or um, some other time. We actually have black books in the pew and it'd be great for you to sign your name and fill them out and pass them down the row. But, but the thing would be interesting to ask is, what kind of hope do you bring in this room? I mean, is Easter Sunday kind of like a spiritual New Year's Eve for you? Like, kind of like, okay, I'm setting my course right. I'm going to church. This is that kind of day. Or is it more? I mean, what kind of hopes do you bring in the room? Maybe your hopes are, you hope your food doesn't burn that you have sitting in the crock pot. Maybe your hopes are, I hope I get a job this summer. Maybe your hopes are, I left my phone in a, in an Uber last night and hope I can get it back, you know? Or maybe your hopes are deeper. Maybe you have deeper hopes that, and longings of maybe you've been dealing with illness chronically, cancer or otherwise. And with each doctor visit, your hope just seems to wane. Maybe your hope is to find that person in that relationship, but every day that passes and every passing comment to you is a comment that just slashes your hope about finding a spouse. What is that hope you bring? C.S. Lewis, who is an author and a great thinker, said this way. He said, most people, if they really learn to look in their own hearts, would know that they do want and they do want something acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that the world offers to give you, but it never quite keeps its promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or, or take, first step, uh, take up some subject that excites us in school are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away into reality. You know, we've been looking in our church for a while now at a book called Ecclesiastes, and we're taking a turn and looking at a book, uh, a letter actually written by someone who you would think he would lost all hope. But he begins this entire letter. In verse three, he says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a different kind of hope. The, right out of the gate, the first thing he wants us to know is hope is living. Now, that's a weird concept for us. If you do a study on hope, if you look at hope, and you know, a lot of times hope in terms of religiosity or something, it can be deemed as like psychological. Many people have seen and even taken the resurrection these days to be something that would be metaphorical. It's more of a psychological help for us. Maybe it's something that helps us get through. Even as Karl Marx said, maybe it's an opium. Maybe it is for some people, right? Some people think that. Maybe some people, if you look at hope, may not see it as a, a religious term. As I was reading in, in, uh, in the New York Times about just the power of hope, there was uh, some uh, over and over articles that really work towards hope for the disadvantaged. Those who may be poor, those in countries who may not have enough, how do they have hope? But the question comes back to 
So does that mean those who are advantaged have hope and those who are disadvantaged don't? What about, I was even watching a TED talk on this. A guy named Sherwin Newland, who's a surgeon and a writer, and he talked about it, the human spirit, which is oftentimes connected to hope. How is hope? Is that, is that hope? But if, but if hope is connected simply to the human spirit, how much of our spirit waxes and wanes? The stories of even our uh, even family, we're from Texas originally, who live in Houston, and, and countless stories of that they are chalked up to, to hope from Hurricane Harvey, of people clinging to stop signs and driving through what were streets and boats and jet skis rescuing people. Those who have hope, stories of hope. But what about those who couldn't hold on tight enough? What about those people that were lost, washed away in the flood and all of their things with it? Is hope lost? Peter, the one who wrote this letter, would know a lot about this because he would know a different definition. Peter was a literal, actual follower of Jesus. And if you hear any of the accounts of what it meant to follow Jesus, it was not an easy thing because every time it was a twist and turn. And Peter himself, who thought he was on the right path, the right campaign, following the right person, who would actually fulfill all his hopes and dreams, personally, theologically, philosophically, ideologically, all of those things, every category, it seemed like Jesus seemed to fit. And then all of the sudden, there's a moment when they're eating a meal and Jesus says, you will all reject me and fall away. And they think, what? And Peter says, I'd never fall away. I'd never not follow you, Jesus. I mean, I've been following you for years. And he says, you are, of all people will deny me three times. Even one of those in cursing and saying, no way. I don't know that man. When he was asked, do you know Jesus? He knew of rejection. He knew the shame. He knew that when Jesus was nailed on the cross, he had denied him three times. He knew that still Saturday that we had yesterday was even louder to him in the silence because Peter himself knew his hopes had died. But for him to write this letter of all of us, those of us who know, as we even sang a hymn that said, ashamed I hear my mocking voice, that was Peter. If you think at any point, if you would say you follow Jesus or maybe you're visiting and you're learning more about what Christianity is, that our voice isn't a mockery of him at points where we deny him, where we reject him where we take the moments, whether quietly or not, to say, mm, I don't really trust him. I don't really believe in that. Hope can't be pinned to your rejection. Your human spirit is not enough. The power of your advantage or disadvantage cannot shake that. The point that, that Peter's trying to get to us is hope has to be living. It has to be pinned to someone that did not stay dead. And isn't death the ultimate thing that we hope we can avoid? Can we all be honest? That's what we work so hard on our health programs, so hard in our brokers, with our brokers to, to leave some sort of an inheritance, to have something there, a nest egg to live on. 
to live as long as we can in this world, but does it carry hope? Can you really hitch your hope to that? Because isn't it true when you're disappointed, you hitch it to something else? Peter says there has to be a living hope. The definition, any other definition for Peter wouldn't cut it. He saw, he met Jesus' eyes. We sing that song and we, we are the people that he's talking about. Though we have not seen him, we love him. He saw him and loved him and yet also rejected him. How much more did he need Jesus to meet his eyes? To let him know your hopes are not pinned to your dreams and ideology, to your strength, Peter, and to mine. Is your hope in a living hope? Is it in the one? It has to be in the one who rose from the dead. It's not a joke, and I'm not gonna make an April Fool's joke on April Fool's Day. But it isn't a joke. Uh, Really, here's the thing. If your hope is in something in this world, it will die. Isn't that what what C.S. Lewis is trying to get at? If you put it in something here, it will perish, it will fade, it will go away. But if it's living and active, if not even death itself can hold it, the bands, as one said, the door was locked, bolted shut, and only one could pry it open. That is Christ, a living hope. I love what the theologian N.T. Wright said about this. He said, this means the message of the resurrection is that the world matters. You see, it flips. If we put our hope in the world, we miss it. But if we put our hope in what defeats death, the corrosion of this world, it matters more. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing Justice and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension to my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement victory over them all. Take away Easter. Hear this. Take away Easter and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take it away and Freud was right to say Christianity is a wish fulfillment. Take it away and Nietzsche was probably right to say Christianity is for wimps. If Jesus did not come of that grave, hope is literally just a wish. It is as fleeting as we've been looking at in a book called Ecclesiastes when it says breath, vapor, it just goes in the air and mist. But if hope is put in flesh and that flesh does not stay dead, it doesn't corrode, it doesn't die, it doesn't doesn't move away, it breaks out and remains and draws near, then isn't that a real hope, a living hope, something that actually makes all other hopes real that the injustices we see 
But the question you and I often have is not just, okay, living hope, that's wonderful, but what does it mean? How, do we, how is it kept? And that's where he goes next. He says, verse four, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. It's kept. It's not just living, it's a kept hope. There's a play by John Paul Sartre called No Exit. It's a very dark play. It's actually a a play about three individuals, two women and one man, who are are sent into a room and locked there forever with their eyelids removed. And they're forced over a period of time in the play to reveal all their guilt. All hope seems to be lost. The implication even of it is that hell begins when hope is lost. You see, the thing about a living hope is it's wonderful for us to say that, but we ask the question, how, do we, how is it kept? We, we all want to ask the question. This letter was actually written in the midst of a bunch of people, the Christians, suffering. It was in the midst of people suffering and dying, and they needed to hear a message, not just that Jesus is living, but they're kept, that Jesus keeps them. And isn't it true when hell begins is when hope ends. But the difference in this message of the resurrection is that what if hell itself is destroyed? What if hell, honestly, the reality of it, the separation from God, which what actually is, is destroyed and defeated by Jesus himself? What if it's addressed in who he is? That if you have a living hope in Christ, then hell is not even a reality for you anymore. To trust in Jesus is to believe that. See, and here's what happens with our hope is that disappointment comes in. And it begins to pry as if you're holding your hope in your hands. And it begins maybe finger by finger all at once to rip your hands away and let hope fall to the ground. Hope in a million things. Hope in the world around us as you see the devastation. Both in our own country and and everywhere. I mean, I I, I watch certain TV shows sometimes that are trying so desperately to infuse hope in the things around us and cause us to take up cause. And yet, sometimes I find myself seeing it saying, they don't express the disappointment, the, the reality of what, what really it's like around us. Maybe there's hope in someone else that you have and you've been left disappointed that your fingers have been pried apart, whether it's in a boss, a, a politician, a friend, a, someone who you put your hope in to, to give you some sort of, 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 of satisfaction in your longing. And yet that person just seems to continually disappoint. You seem to have the same conversations over and over. You seem to hear the same things over and over and see no difference in your life. Hope in someone else, hope in our children, hope for ourselves, just as I even mentioned, sitting in an Easter service like this and hoping that I see something different in me. 
because I want to work harder at it to better myself. Isn't that what it is? If you even look up hope in a dictionary, if you just type it in on, in Google, it just pops up and says it's an expectation. It's something you expect that to, to, to be a result. But what about kept? See, what Peter is saying is it's kept, that biblical hope is a difference. It's not a wish that you hope happens, an expectation. It's actually something that's already been granted that we are moving towards. So he uses these metaphors of imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And he talks about it in, through an inheritance, that an inheritance is kept. Right, we're about to have golf season. And many of these golf tournaments are coming up. And during those golf tournaments, I always find it very interesting that over and over they show these investment commercials, brokerage things. And it's constantly after, you know, they want to catch you, right? They're smart, right? At and after tax season, it's like, okay, what are you going to do with your money? Isn't that another reminder to us of, oh man, where are we going with our money? This word inheritance would make sense to us. But it's not, this is the difference. If you're here this morning, you think that, well, God is just some sort of a broker, some sort of a insurance for me with my salvation, that he keeps it in a sense in order for us to kind of avoid the pangs of death and hell and those things. It's no, 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 that's not what he is. He's not putting himself as a broker of your salvation. He's saying even more than that. He's saying he doesn't just keep it, he's a guard of it. And he guards it in terms of military action with his might from these things that are imperishable, a word in Greek that means laid waste to. In that time, if you had an inheritance, it was really land more than it was what we would think money in a bank or on a screen that we see. If you had land and people came, you, were, you had people that would guard it because that was what you would take with you. And to have it imperishable was to say, you didn't want people to come lay waste to what you owned, to come in as marauders and take it and destroy it. And that fear of that, what can lay waste to your hopes? What are the things that you think, maybe it's the voice in your head that you've grown up with that over and over, that tape that plays, that you've learned all your life from maybe your parents or something you grew up somewhere. What is the tape that you play over and over and over in your mind that lays waste and gives rise to your disappointment. Maybe it is you are a disappointment. Maybe you never met the expectations of your parents. Maybe you didn't meet the expectations that you had for yourself. Maybe there were more than that for you. Do you know what Peter's saying is, it is imperishable. There is no one, those lies that you hear, the things that you continue to latch onto that you think will drive you to be a better person, it gives you hope that maybe you'll overcome it. You don't even have to think of that. It's been overcome. You have been guarded. There is one who, who lays waste to those lies. There is one in Christ who has come and takes on that being laid waste to in order to give you life, to tell you that those are lies, that they're not real, that they will not have the day, they will not win. 
They will not overtake you. If this is true, that your hope is kept undefiled, imperishable rather, and no one can come in and take it. And that's even the second thing here is undefiled. It's a word that means untouched by evil, unspoiled. It's a word that means that you and I think our evil defiles it all our hopes. But what if, what if the resurrection, what if, what if what has happened in this living hope is to actually come into your defilement and to remove it onto another? What if, what if the point of the cross and the resurrection is to go straight into the heart of what lays waste? What if it's saying to us the difference in Christianity and any other religion is the fact that it's not that you hope to overcome, it's that someone else, a champion, had to come and be laid waste for the ways that your hope would never sustain itself on its own. That Jesus takes this on and he takes on every part of you that you think is spoiled by evil. Every one of you in this room I know comes into this place where you think, I'm wrong here, I'm guilty here. We feel guilt for the places that we shouldn't and we don't for the things we should because we are so messed up with the way that we think we're gonna hope to overcome that. And we look for every resource to do it. But what if the Bible is telling us right now the resource is right in front of you? That you have a savior, you have an actual physical person who takes on the grossest thing that you would ever think to come in your mind of yourself or even of your neighbor. There are passages in the Bible that say that as as close to even coming to blasphemy as it can by saying he identifies so close, he sympathizes so much with your weaknesses. There is not a moment, not a thought, not an action that has not been taken on from your defilement onto him so that your hope is secure. There are a million things you could put in that blank. What is it? And here's the beautiful thing. It's unfading. It's a word meaning perennial. It's, it's just what you think it is. It's, it's a word talking about flowers and, and, and gardens. It's things that don't fade away. I'm about to do the worst part of things I've had to do in a while. I'm about to start weeding again. And I hate weeding our yard because it always shows that what I'm not doing But then I also see what's coming back and what isn't. And I'm amazed oftentimes at the winters we have or the juke outs of, oh, it's warm and we're gonna freeze in snow again, you know, like it did just a few weeks ago. What continues to spring back? What continues to not fade? It's it's those things in your life that take bites out of your hope. That's what unfading's like. It is the slow prying of your fingers. It is that doctor visit. It is that relationship you don't think you will ever have. It is those things that continue to pry your hands apart. And you need to understand, if your hope is in anything other than a living hope, your hands are never gonna be strong enough. You will lose hope. And there will be those moments where 
you receive the news that you never wanted to hear. And you will be disappointed in relationships, in yourself. And if you continue to try and grasp your hands together to hold that hope, you will not be able to hold it. I have been in position before where I have thought and had hope for a number of years for certain things in my life, both big and small, and felt my hands at sometimes just go limp because I don't even think hope is a reality. Even as a Christian, my belief isn't what makes my hope real. If you think your belief is what makes your hope steady, you're wrong as well. Because the only thing that keeps the hope there is in Christ, in a living hope. What happens in verse seven when it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Nothing pries your hands apart more than suffering. Nothing. Then the reality of what you leave these doors, and if this is simply a nice Easter pep talk, you will leave these doors and every bit of the suffering that you face is gonna pull your hands apart like that. And your hope will fall. Do not, please, mistake this morning and what I'm teaching on from this passage that I need to hear myself because I tend to think, oh, is my hope in even having a position of spiritual authority? We can attach our hope to anything, but it is to make us genuine that the Lord Jesus brings us through this, that he keeps our hope to make us, even when we drop it, that he is always holding it to make us real, to make us genuine. You wanna know what makes you real and not bitter and lose your hope? And not bitter and angry and callous person. One who says, what hope is there? We just talked about this a couple weeks ago about injustice that we see. How easy is it when we see injustice in the city? And many of us in this room are part of, of, of places of deep darkness in this city where we're addressing that. How do you not lose hope going, gosh, there's so much darkness? Because we know there has to be one whose hands are tighter and will never, ever drop our hope and are making us real by our hope being placed in him. I love this story of the Velveteen Rabbit. I don't know if you remember this story, kid's story. It's a story of toys, essentially, before kind of Toy Story kind of took over. It was a book written. It's about a rabbit wondering, how does it become real? How, how do you become real? And the Velveteen Rabbit is talking to the wise skin horse and this is their dialogue listen to what they say the velveteen rabbit turned to the old wise experienced skin horse in the nursery and asked what is real does it mean having things buzz inside you and a, a stick out handle the skin horse replied real isn't how you're made it's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long long time not just to play with but really loves you then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes. 
said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Does it happen always all, all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, but you become. It takes a long time. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get very shabby. But once you are real, you cannot become unreal again. It lasts for always. This is the work that God is doing. You see your hair falling out. You see your eyes. You know what happens in the world around you. But you are becoming real. This is heading somewhere. This isn't a stop morning. We won't leave this morning and that's it. Thanks for coming. It moves on, it continues. This is an announcement of hope. This is an announcement of living hope that is kept for you, an announcement that he even finishes writing. If it's not enough to know that his hands hold us and that we are becoming real in him, he finishes by saying something that is so extraordinary. Concerning this salvation in verse 10, This salvation I just told you about. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And if that's not enough, he says, these are the things in which angels long to look. Do you realize the language here of announcement and good news in this passage is a word gospel. It means evangel. We typically think of the word gospel as a religious word. It actually wasn't. At that time, the word gospel, evangel, was used all across. It was a word even used in the Roman Empire to say the gospel according to Emperor Trajan. It essentially meant that there was an announcement of fact, a reality that happened. It would be a word that would say an announcement of a a victory in a war or a king ascending a throne. And yet this announcement, what was studied so much by the prophets and what has peered into that language of even angels long to look, it's appearing, it's a straining of the eyes that the angels are peering down. This is the picture we're supposed to get that the prophets, the people we read in the Bible were like, "Those, those people knew God. They said they were serving you. That we have something that even the angels long to look. And it is an announcement of reality. An announcement, a gospel, isn't something. He wouldn't use that language to write a wish, a hope, that it just happens. He says, in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He is essentially proclaiming, he's saying the announcement, it's coming, the king is here. It's an announcement for you to take up. If you are here this morning and you would say, I am a Christian, but like you on Easter, I sit and I go, I don't know, I need to be a better one. That is not the hope that you need to take up this morning. It is the hope that he has broken out of the grave and he is alive for you. 
And it is the announcement that the angels even now are peering. Whether you are here and you believe in angels or not, it is saying that there are spiritual beings, the council of heaven themselves, are actually saying they are longing and peering down at what we get to grasp. The hope, the living hope of the Lord Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know where my hope is. Would you try this on? Would you take it up? As as it's saying, it's actually an announcement to you. It's an announcement for you to say, hey, listen to this. Here's the man who took up the cross, who proclaimed glory, and now sits at God's right hand holding our hope and who we are in him to live forevermore. Let me pray for us this morning.